Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Human Rights Watch, Homes for Our Troops, Jane Goodall Institute. You can find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders at give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports in the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. This will be the second of a two-part episode covering the highlights of our episodes in 2023. We covered the first half of the year last week, and this will be covering the second half of the year and some quotes and highlights from those episodes, inspiring you, hopefully, to go back and check out some of the full shows when you hear something in these episodes that sparks your interest. We're going to start out today talking about an episode that Aria Florent and Tanyelle Edwards did on racism and racial inequalities in America and their desire to address reparations that they believe should be paid to African Americans for slavery. And there is extensive discussion about systemic and institutional racism against African Americans in this episode, including examples like housing discrimination through redlining. They also talk about the need to address root causes of racism to move forward as a society. They want to build a culture and capacity for repairing harm. And Aria emphasizes that reparations is really about repairing harm and building a society focused on acknowledging harm, taking accountability, and actively redressing injustice. This requires, she believes, cultural and narrative shifts. Also, Tanya Edwards, who joined in on this episode, discusses how foundations, philanthropists, and corporations, and other institutions can contribute funding and drive change in supporting reparations efforts. Some of the motivations of hope and vision that Aria and Tanya share are that there are sources of inspiration to continue doing this work despite challenges, including their vision for future generations and a commitment to racial dignity and healing. In a solo episode, I talk about charity finances and the continuing over-reliance of overhead metrics, and I provide context on different types of charities. I dive into the history behind the public obsession with organizational overhead, 
And I argue clearly for why overhead alone is a flawed and oversimplified metric. Some of the challenges around accurately tracking overhead and trends affecting the financial health of nonprofits today are also covered to create a fuller picture of nonprofit finances. I also do a solo episode on clothing donations. I make a case for donating excess clothing as an impactful act of generosity that also tackles the problem of textile waste. I provide some guidance on how to evaluate potential recipients, preparing items for donation, and turning this into an ongoing practice involving others. Elvia Castro from the team at the Wise Giving Alliance presents insights from the latest donor trust report on why individuals are giving less to charities. With a focus on distinctions across generations and demographic groups, barriers charities face in engaging younger and lower income donors are analyzed. Elvia ties the decline in giving to inequality and institutional distrust, arguing the charitable sector's unique value must be clearly conveyed. I speak with Gail McGovern, who traces her evolution from corporate America to leading the cultural transformation at the American Red Cross. She dramatically strengthened its financial footing, discussed efforts to embed diversity, equity, and inclusion, maintain political neutrality, and inspire staff and volunteers towards serving the mission despite outside criticism. Jamie Horst of Traditional Medicinals discussed the concept of corporate purpose and benefit corporations that aim to not only make profits, but also deliver positive impacts on society. Traditional Medicinals was presented as an example of such a company, founded with the dual purpose of supporting herbalists, farmers, and providing natural wellness products. A significant portion of our conversation focused on how traditional medicinals measures its social and environmental performance, including fair trade certification, and some of the challenges with quantifying community impact. We provide some details on partnerships aimed at improving sustainability in herbal supply chains and the healthcare access initiative in the Philippines also shares advice for companies that want to embed purpose, suggesting starting with understanding positive versus negative impacts, planning for the long term, and involving employees to help determine and uphold the organization's motivations. Gene Axius from Creating Healthier Communities talks about how an individual's health is largely influenced by social factors like race zip code, and environment. Creating Healthier Communities is an organization working to address barriers to health access and promote health equity. Jean outlined CHC's evolution from community health charities to its current focus on bridging gaps and convening partners. He highlighted some current initiatives around maternal health, cancer care, and mental health. Jennifer Rodriguez from the Youth Law Center discussed 
major problems and inadequacies with the foster care system, including lack of support, multiple placements, and poor outcomes for those who age out. We talk a lot about racial disparities with statistics shared on higher rates of institutionalization and lower adoption rates for children of color. The importance of loving relationships were emphasized, with the Youth Law Center director highlighting how essential foster parents and community connections are for children's development and future success. Her own difficult experiences in foster care underscored how the absence of a caring, stable adult can negatively impact trajectories. Jennifer provides details on the Youth Law Center's legal advocacy initiatives aiming to both prevent harm and transform foster care into a nurturing system focused on building youth strengths. Several current projects are described, including efforts to reimagine supports for the future and promoting excellent parenting. As I mentioned, she shared her own inspirational personal story of overcoming adversity with help from key mentors. And this illustrated how she found purpose through the work of empowering other youth impacted by the foster care and juvenile justice systems. I spoke with Kitty Block, the CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. Kitty and I talked about the wide range of the Humane Society's efforts from rescues to legislative advocacy to transform economies. Key priorities include confronting factory farming by giving animals more space and phasing out extreme confinement pens, working to end puppy mills and promote pet-friendly policies. We also discussed extensively partnering with industry, including former adversaries, to enact lasting change. An example was given of Korean dog meat farmers who became advocates and collaborators in transitioning to more humane businesses. The importance of understanding all perspectives, celebrating incremental wins, and taking a long view of progress was emphasized. The overarching message conveyed was that improving systems for animals improves environments for humans regarding health, climate, and more. I spoke with Margaret Richardson about GoFundMe, its model, and its process. There was significant discussion around how GoFundMe's system works to facilitate peer-to-peer giving and ensure trust and safety of transactions. This includes verifying fundraisers and having a guarantee policy for donors. GoFundMe's ambition to become the top destination for charitable giving globally are conveyed in this podcast. And given its ability to quickly spread stories and mobilize aid, it believes it has the potential to get there. Margaret shares her motivations stemming from a long family history of public service. She expresses belief in collective responsibility and that coming together to uplift our communities is within humanity's capability. Her optimism in GoFundMe's capacity to realize this vision of empowerment comes across throughout. And now it's time for our giving tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. 
Unfortunately, some donors have the misperception that charity should be run by volunteers, but the reality is paid staff are an important and vital part of most every charitable organization out there. The other thing that is misunderstood is some people view salaries as overhead. That's not really true. The staff of a salary is engaged in different activities. Some are engaged in delivering the actual program service the organization has. Some may be involved in fundraising. Some may be involved in administrative activities. And some may be involved in all three, depending on how their time is spent. So the perception that it's just overhead is actually incorrect. In most cases, individuals who are paid are helping to carry out the important programs that you're supporting. The other thing is that executive compensation, uh, charity staff members, in general, is considered public information. And we'll find that information in the IRS Form 990, which is annually filed by charities that are bringing in a certain level of revenue. In most cases, you'll be able to identify the compensation of the organization's top executive, the CEO, that will be identified there. Now, who's responsible for setting charity salaries? Actually, for the top executives, such as the CEO, it's the board of directors that sets the CEO's salary. And if you're running a large institution, let's say a $100 million charity or more, you can expect that there'd be someone with a six-figure salary helping to run that show because there may be hundreds of employees and lots of important decisions on a regular basis to run that organization. So remember, when you're considering executive compensation and paid staff at organizations, these are the very individuals that help run the organization's program service activities in most cases and are an important part of delivering the very activity that you want to support. Michael Thatcher and Ben Horwitz joined me for a discussion about Charity Navigator's acquisition of Causeway, a startup enabling personalized giving portfolios. They explained the rationale, vision, and plans behind the acquisition. They start by discussing cause-based giving models, believing that Causeway's cause-based giving fund allows donors to support multiple nonprofits addressing a specific cause area. And they believe this can be integrated into Charity Navigator's platform. They also discuss revenue diversification. Michael believes that Charity Navigator has plans to diversify its revenue streams beyond individual donors, and this acquisition of Causeway could help because of Causeway's subscription model. They also believe that this acquisition can improve donor decisions and money flows. They emphasize how the acquisition will ultimately enable better donor decisions and make it easier for money to flow between donors to nonprofits doing critical work. They think also that this highlights the potential for innovative solutions at the intersection of philanthropy and technology. I spoke with Dr. Donald Wood about the Muscular Dystrophy Association's iconic telethon that for decades fueled public awareness and funding for muscular dystrophy research. Don explored various medical breakthroughs that donations have enabled, like identifying the gene linked to Duchenne muscular dystrophy and emerging genetic therapies. Additionally, 
The dialogue covered the critical role of nonprofits like MDA in advancing treatments by bringing together scientific talent, organizing volunteers, and pushing knowledge frontiers that other institutions deem improbable. Don conveyed his decade-long passion for the mission-driven work from early research days to the thrill of modern scientific discoveries. While reminiscing about the beloved telethon, the conversation spotlighted MDA's perseverance in driving research, treatments, and hope for various neuromuscular diseases. It exemplified how commitment to a health cause through an organizational vehicle like MDA can catalyze medical innovations that radically transform patients' lives over time. I spoke with Misty Copeland and Karen Campbell about the Misty Copeland Foundation. We explored Misty's early exposure to dance through a local boys and girls club, which set her on the path to becoming a world-famous principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. We discussed systemic barriers and lack of diversity that Misty witnessed and experienced in the ballet world. To address this, her foundation launched the Be Bold program to make dance training more accessible, engaging, and representative for youth in underserved neighborhoods. We also highlighted how creative movement can help young people, especially introverted or marginalized ones, find their voice and confidence. Misty and Karen also conveyed their aims to continue evolving the program's reach and framework to maximize its ability to drive equity in ballet and uplift participants through artistic expression. Misty's inspirational arc was spotlighted. Her dedication to opening doors and dance for the next generation is venerated. And we emphasize the foundation's mission to use Misty's platform and the transformative power of arts to empower youth. I had a wide ranging conversation with Phil Buchanan, the CEO at the Center for Effective Philanthropy and we discussed the evolution of the center over the last 20 years into a diverse global resource helping donors be more strategic and avoid common pitfalls. Phil emphasized the need for funders to check assumptions, build authentic community relationships, and collaborate rather than act alone. We also discussed the persistent lack of diversity among foundation boards and leadership despite recognizing it as an issue. We discussed the positive effects and lessons that can be learned from McKinsey Scott's high trust, flexible giving to nonprofits. While underlining the complex both and nature of effective philanthropy, the conversation we had spotlighted how visible diversity and humble trust-based partnerships can catalyze real social change versus top-down lone hero approaches. Our conversation reiterated how mindsets and power dynamics in the funding world need continued improvement. Dr. Karen Knudsen, CEO at the American Cancer Society, and I discussed the American Cancer Society's three-pronged strategy focused on discovery, advocacy, and patient support to improve lives. This encompasses funding cutting-edge research, pushing for legislative changes to enhance access, and providing services like transportation, 
lodging, and information. Dr. Knudsen stressed the importance of early detection through prevention and screening to catch cancers at more treatable stages. She uses prostate cancer as a case study, noting five-year survival is nearly 100% when caught early, but screening rates are only 33% nationally. She highlights inequities in cancer burdens and outcomes, especially for prostate cancer, where mortality rates for black men are two to four times higher than other groups, despite similar screening rates. Resolving disparities is a major priority. Dr. Knudsen explains key initiatives like training volunteer health equity ambassadors to promote prevention, screening, and establishing patient navigation services as a reimbursable care component to help people through treatment complexities. She conveys that progress has been made in reducing cancer mortality rates thanks to research investments, but expresses concern about declining federal funding threatening advances. Dr. Knudsen urges individuals to develop screening plans with their doctor and emphasizes the life-saving impact of American Cancer Society programs. Alpana Chibra-Zaniga, a DEI consultant who outlines her personal journey as an immigrant and educator, which drove a passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion work stemming from her own experiences with discrimination. This led her to actually co-found a DEI consultancy. She explains how DEI consulting emphasizes understanding an organization's culture and tailoring plans to their needs while keeping focus on addressing systemic inequities that persist despite increasing workforce diversity. She discusses pushback arising against DEI amid wider societal polarization, but remains hopeful given she's witnessed mindset shifts enabling once taboo conversations on race and difference. Alpana stresses embracing discomfort as essential. Alpana highlights restorative practices in schools centering data and open dialogue to mitigate biases in student treatment and discipline. This acknowledges and addresses systemic racism. While parents, leaders fluctuate on prioritizing DEI, she notes students continue needing guidance on having constructive conversations across difference. So, She feels optimism about young people advancing equity. I have two solo episodes, one focused on basic tips on giving and the other on collaborating to achieve impact. Regarding basic tips, I focus on three areas. Making sure that donors are equipped to vet charities before giving to ensure accountability and impact. Resisting emotional appeals and immediate pressure in order to verify planned uses of funds and tax compliance. And in my basic tips episode, I urge donors to check charities out at give.org before making a donation. I advise people to resist pressure to donate on the spot from solicitors to give yourself time to check the charity out. I warn against heart-wrenching donation appeals, which don't guarantee that the charity is going to be effective. And I recommend pressing charities for specifics on programs and planned uses of donations rather than 
the broad claims about beneficiaries. In my episode on collaboration to achieve impact, I argue that true impact goes beyond measurable inputs, outputs, and outcomes to create ripples over time, even if unobserved. So metrics shouldn't solely drive efforts, but rather inform activities for greatest need. I hold up incremental goal setting, urging focus on fully solving problems through collaboration versus defined percentage increases. This requires assessing absolute need. I argue that metrics don't convey the full scope of issues faced, noting health organizations now examine social determinants holistically beyond medical factors to improve well-being. I warn of charity commoditization from economic changes, with innovation key for sustainability and ripple effects. I advocate building future-focused collaborations around assets to meet emerging needs. In my episode with Asha Curran, the CEO of Giving Tuesday, she explains that Giving Tuesday leadership works year-round supporting grassroots changemakers in nearly 100 countries and helping nonprofits improve engagement amid concerning donation trend declines. She notes while the Giving Tuesday money total may continue rising, the indicator data shows troubling declines in donor participation, highlighting economic strains. Still, the day yields valuable operating funds and kindness acts. Asha advocates coalitions merging institutions and movement dynamics for scale and order, citing collective giving successes. She feels hopeful that coming multi-generational wealth transfers tap values around shared action. Regarding better nonprofit activist alignment, Asha shares small groups can deploy creative, nimble efforts, unlike bureaucratic organizations. She states jointly forming campaigns around issues resonates more. Asha's call to action urges nonprofits to leverage the day for storytelling and donor acquisition. She also calls on individuals because small generosity acts have exponential chain effects. My colleague Bennett Weiner offers tips on disaster response giving, noting that disaster response encompasses rescue, immediate relief, and long-term recovery. He notes technology enables rapid appeals now, so checking charities beforehand is key as immediate emotions may override ideal giving decisions. He advises ensuring charities have disaster area access logistics solved, warning individual transportation efforts often hit bottlenecks lacking coordination. Established groups efficiently get provisions based on need versus well-intentioned duplication. Bennett states circumstances like infrastructure damage significantly affect aid delivery, requiring adaptability. Predictability is low, underscoring the importance of not rushing the first donation opportunity without vetting it. He argues celebrity solicitation for aid funds generally proves problematic in capability despite name recognition and pure motives. It's better to encourage giving to expert relief groups with track records and efficient systems.
Bennett contrasts disasters like earthquakes ending versus ongoing war emergencies, shifting locations, and psychological tolls requiring sustained funding, not fading attention. He notes refugee dynamics and access barriers pose distinct issues. I speak with Cindy Lott, who outlines the new professional doctorate in philanthropic leadership at Indiana University's Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, explaining its applied research focus and goal of disseminating student project solutions to help solve civil society issues. She states that the program's cohort-based model aims for diversity in student backgrounds and sectors to enable peer support and interdisciplinary perspectives that students can apply in their organizations. She explains the curriculum incorporates latest practices like shadow content from sector experts, community feedback, emphasis on evidence over opinions, and requiring project dissemination plans leveraging students' professional networks. She notes that senior-level students expand faculty understandings of practitioner research needs and provide lifetime association opportunities for each other in already underway self-organizing global meetups. Cindy expresses hope that beyond individual research, students may collectively address key topics like equitable definitions of philanthropy to maximize the problem-solving potential of assembling courts of thoughtful, driven leaders. I interview Anastasia Tur and Igor Lysin, and they are with the Foundation Ukraine, working to support immigrants in Poland through informational, legal, educational, cultural, and humanitarian assistance programs to aid integration and self-sufficiency. Anastasia discusses the initial outpouring of support for Ukrainian refugees has declined, but core partners witnessing their impact have continued engagement while also volunteering expertise. They talk about 70% of employable Ukrainian immigrants having jobs now, though often below their qualifications, driving determination to develop skills and advocate for opportunities. They talk about children having struggled adjusting to disrupted lives and schools not equipped for diversity, requiring psychological and educational support targeting various age group needs. Having a long-term experience with migrants and crisis response has equipped their organization to persist despite fading attention, but more resources and collaborations are vital to sustain their efforts. In my conversation with Robin Steinberg, five points emerged. First, cash bail is unfair, unnecessary, and perpetuates systemic racism, drives mass incarceration, and erodes the presumption of innocence. Two, the bail bond industry makes money by exploiting desperate families and does not actually ensure public safety or court appearances. Three, reforms are needed to eliminate cash bail and create a fair system focused on public safety rather than wealth. Significant progress has been made in some jurisdictions. Four, 
Systemic change is difficult and slow, but critical to create a more just criminal justice system. Dedicated, passionate advocates are essential to drive reforms. 5. Social justice work, despite challenges, can be deeply meaningful and fulfilling for both individuals and communities when pursued persistently. And that sums up 2023. I hope you've enjoyed the retrospective on 2023. This was episode two. There was also an episode one, which I hope you will check out as well. And again, if any of these episodes sparked an interest, I hope you'll go and see the actual interview or listen to the actual interview where you can get a lot more insight and information from the speaker directly. So this is the Heart of Giving podcast. We'll now be moving from this to resuming our regular schedule of new episodes. I hope you'll listen. If you're checking in for the first time, I hope you'll subscribe to the show. And you can do that by going to any major podcast platform. If you'd like to support the podcast, we'd be very appreciative. You can do that by going to give.org and you can make your donation there. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll check in again next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.